Welcome to Out in the Bay Queer Radio. I'm Christopher Beale. The San Francisco drag troupe, the Coquettes, which counted Divine and Sylvester among its members, are back this weekend with a new show called Eternal Emissions. This week on Out in the Bay, we're going to hear from two of the founders of the Coquettes, starting with Fayette Hauser. When you took acid, the first thing you did was take off your clothes. And we'll visit with music director Scrumbly Coldwin. Artistic drag was really the key. We were definitely not your standard mainline old school drag queen. Remembering the Coquettes ahead of their show this weekend in Oakland. That's this time out in the Bay. The Coquettes were founded in 1969 by a group of mostly queer hippies in San Francisco. Eric Jansen caught up with Fayette Hauser, one of the founding members of the Coquettes, this summer at the San Francisco Public Library. She starts by giving us a little bit of background on the Coquettes. Well, we were an experimental theater group that formed in the fall of 1969. And our first performance was New Year's Eve, 6970. And um, we we were received wholeheartedly by the community because we were really part of the community. We we're a big part of the community. Uh, and we were channeling the energy of the community and everybody got it right away. So we were very popular. And then we just devoted our lives to doing the shows once a month at the Palace Theater in North Beach. And then we took it to New York, but we wanted to go to Paris actually, but we didn't get farther than New York. But then we came back and did more shows, but then everybody um, wanted to go out on their own. Like they all had uh, singular ideas. People, you know, we were very individuated through the acid and through a lot of uh, other awarenesses and definitely by the kind of experience that every show uh, gave you because we followed a form that was created by John Vaccaro in Manhattan in the underground theater scene. And he would have a theme, he would start a play in a certain way, but then it went wherever it was going to go. And um, the person who came to us, we were living together, there was a bunch of artists living in a, in a Victorian flat. And um, we were dressing up all the time. We were very active as artists. And Hibiscus, he had been in theater in New York, and he came here and he wanted to have a special like psychedelic theater. And he had worked with John Vaccaro, so he came to us and he moved in immediately because he was so fabulous. And um, he presented us with this idea of doing this kind of theater. And I knew exactly because I'm from New York and then when I was in high school, I used to go to Lower Manhattan and seek out the avant-garde. So I knew exactly what he was talking about. And so that's what we did. So so I, in your book, you describe um, hibiscus as your shaman. Why, how was, why was that? Hibiscus was a very spiritualized person, and he had an enormous personality. And he was able to express himself with movement and dress. And uh, he just had a huge spiritual energy. And uh, he was so dynamic. And he, he was from theater. None of us were actors. We were artists in different mediums, but not 
performance. And uh, Hibiscus was a theater person because he had come from theater. And I mean, he was the only person I've ever met that was really born in a trunk, as they say. There was, he said, theater is the blood in my veins, you know. So he presented us with this idea of a new theater for the new decade, which was experimental, and, and we would each bring our own individual selves to the stage. And we would have a theme for each show, which we worked out in a scrapbook. And there's photos of it on display here, I think. And um, so he encouraged us all to have input into what the theater was going to be. And so every show would follow, loosely follow a theme. So the, but everybody, you didn't know what was going to happen. You would get on stage, the show would start, and then it would go wherever. And it was really fun. Partly because you were all on acid, or most of you? No, I, I, no, we had already been psychedelicized. So whether or not we took acid for the show was really kind of irrelevant. Um, because we were already blown, so, <laughs> you know. That <laughs> I love that expression. That didn't matter. Uh, so, yeah, it was great. I love it. Now, in shorthand, people talk, you know, they sort of short, shorthand people say, oh, yeah, Cockettes were this, you know, mostly gay, hippie drag group. But so no, what do you think? and of that's why, yeah. Well, the gay community, there was no, drag meant female impersonation. And there, that was a subculture. They would play at Finocchio's in North Beach, and they would dress up in, you know, old prom dresses and bad wigs and, and you know, flump around the stage and or lip sync or whatever. And it was really, you know, just it was a it was like a, a joke, actually. And when we came along uh, and there were. We had ev we had one of everything in the group, you know. Link was an Indian. We had uh, uh, three or four uh, African American members, five women, and I mean, bisexual. I mean, at that time, was the androgyny era. So there was no boundaries to anything at that point, which was fabulous. You know, it's funny because I was reading one of the sections earlier, just flipping through the book. That's the first chance I've, the first time I've seen it, by the way. So I've just been flipping wow, through it in the last okay. hour. Yeah, I um, didn't get the. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't get the advanced copy. I didn't, didn't think. I didn't think fast enough. It deserved <laughs> because of the pandemic. So, so my question is about you. You had uh, there's something in here that talks about the sexual fluidity that was going on at the time and how. Right. Um, the, uh, well, there was this God body consciousness and sexual right. self-awareness, and it m made me think, like, oh, this is kind of like pre-trans or pre-gender non-binary, right? Where, where it was like, this is a Those fluid. Those words weren't even in no, the No, the words weren't there then, then no. of course, but, I mean, it's a, no. the concept was there. Yes. Well, the concept came about definitely because of the psychedelicization of everyone because when you took acid, the first thing you did was take off your clothes. And everybody would go to the park because that was a safe place to trip out. You know, you always tried to stay with a group. We would schedule our acid trips and say, okay, we're going to Mount Tam today and we're going to take acid because it's Peter Pan's birthday. And, you know, so you, it really wasn't something that you did in, in a solitary way. That, that was too risky because you, you know, whatever. Yeah. But it was more fun and definitely better to do it in a group and to be in the park. The park was the mecca, really. Mm -hmm. And uh, nudity became so common that um, it was nothing, you know. So, so people were walking down Haight Street naked or, you know, nearly or at the time? Well, by the time I was here, people would be 
pretty much sitting on the street naked, yeah. But that took a long time. I mean, it was the diggers who chilled out in the 60s when the Summer of Love happened. The government, like, flipped out and were jailing kids and sending them home. It was like this wave, this onslaught they never expected. But it was a movement that had begun and there was no stopping it. And so the diggers, they were the great activists that um, made it okay. They talked to the city council and they said, don't worry about a thing, we'll take care of everything, we'll find housing, we'll feed them, don't worry about it, leave, leave, us, leave it to us. And they did, you know? And the, the thing was, the Victorians were unoccupied and they were bulldozing them. Um, so, they became squats or they were owned by people that didn't even live in the city. And so the hippies occupied them and you could get a flat for a hundred dollars. So you would have, I don't know how many people, but you would chip in for the rent, but it was very easy to live here and to have that kind of freedom to pursue what you considered your real work. You know, I mean, people who, I mean, this is the problem today because so many people, young people, are tethered to jobs that, that they don't like. They don't like their life. And this is when drug damage comes along because they're, they're so depressed or so confused because everyone tells them that, look at all these gadgets you know, all you have to do is work for however many, you know, and you can have all these gadgets, but it, they don't, it's not fulfilling for young people. And I think that's why they turn to so many drugs. You're listening to Out in the Bay Queer Radio. I'm Christopher Beale. This week, we're remembering the groundbreaking drag troupe, the Cockettes. They're back on stage in Oakland this weekend at Piano Fight. A few months ago, I was invited by Cockettes founding member Scrumbly Coldwin to stop by his home in Oakland for some music and some memories. Scrumbly got that nickname in 1969, which is the same year the Cockettes formed. I was living in Bushmaker at the time. That was the first Cockettes commune. And I found myself sort of becoming part of this kind of glamour hippie thing. <laughs> if there could be such a thing, but it was the glamour because of the rock and roll and the people we knew. I mean, Iggy Pop once was, uh, dis- I discovered him in my bed when I came back from Yosemite. He wasn't waiting for me. He was with a young woman. But he looked very open and uh, inviting when he looked right at me. <laughs> you know, he was definitely a polyamorous person. We got to see Iggy at full mass. I got to see Iggy <laughs> At full mast, it was, it was quite a sight. One of our other activities, regular activities, was to go to the midnight movies called the Nocturnal Dream Shows at the Palace Theater. And they'd have all kinds of amazing films there. I mean, that's where John Waters first appeared. I was going to say it was subversive stuff that wasn't playing at other theaters, right? It was. It was underground subversive stuff. There was um, Kenneth Anger movies, Scorpio Rising, and there was also Busby Berkeley, which I'd never really been exposed to that much, but ha- have this wonderful selection of movies curated. The people who ran these shows asked Hibiscus, who was this fabulous bearded drag queen, to bring some friends and perform one night at the theater right after the movie. And so Hibiscus did, and we danced a kick line to the Rolling Stones' Honky Tonk Woman, 
and uh, they wanted more. They wouldn't let us go. And from that point on, all the midnight audiences would say, bring on the dancing boys. And you were one of the dancing boys? And I was one of the dancing boys. And we had dancing girls, too. And it was whoever was around us would come with us and, and dress up in their finest, uh, freakiest stuff. Artistic drag was really the key. We were definitely not your standard mainline old school drag queen. Uh, we weren't trying to convince anyone that we were one gender or another. We were just celebrating all of our sexuality. So to be both at once, to be uh, uh, in drag as Marilyn Monroe with a beard, to be in fabulous drag and uh, reveal yourself with a glittered <laughs> at one point, or, or fully rhinestoned, meticulously glued to your penis, you know, um, in beautiful patterns, you know, as if it were a rhinestone, a tattoo made of rhinestones. It's art drag is what it is, is what it was. We were making statements. So the, the statement was, we are neither exclusively male nor exclusively female. We are none of the above. We are all of the above. We celebrate every combination of, of uh, freakiness that you can imagine. We love shocking people. We love turning uh, the old concepts on their ear. And of course, being young, that's, that's natural anyway. You always want to radicalize and change the world. This all began around the summer of love. And just based on the stories you've shared with me already, I can't help but ask, how much of a part did drugs play in the Cockettes? Like, how important was it? It depends on who you were. If you were into your drugs, you were into your drugs. If they helped express, if they helped you to come out, so to speak, not just gay, but as to come out as who you really are. Yes, then they were a part of a part of that, a big part. LSD was a big part for me. That's I was able to, uh, but that was back in '66 when I had those big revelations. '65, '66. Uh, you have the revelation that, oh, so things aren't, there is no in crowd. It's just sort of a decision that some group gets together and decides. Uh, there is no hip. There is no, uh, you know, normal. All those things I discovered with LSD, <laughs> you know, that uh, the only reality is our connection, that, that we're all part of the same thing. And we all wanted to f everything and everybody in the whole world at the same time. I think about midway into 1970, our first year at the palace, when the crowds were around the block, people trying to get in, people sneaking in. Uh, there might have been as many as 1,800 people in a 1,200-seat capacity theater. Uh, it was like the children of paradise with people hanging off the rafters and, and you know, people were f***ing in the aisles and everything.
on Halloween of 1970, our first year, what premiered there was Night of the Living Dead. That was the premiere of that movie. And there was a whole huge audience, 1,200 plus sitting in the aisles, people stoned to the on LSD watching Night of the Living Dead and people freaked out. We had three Brides of Frankenstein that night prepared to go on. One of them, Goldie Glitters, had an epileptic fit because she had taken MDA and had to be carried out in an, on a stretcher. So the audience not only saw Night of the Living Dead, stoned to the on acid, they saw the Bride of Frankenstein being carried out. You had this amazing sense of, oh, we're glamorous. But it was more like rock star, and we kind of knew it was, it's not real, but let's go along and play along with it. We would, for that show in the middle of that summer, 1970, uh, we did a show called Hollywood Babylon after the Kenneth Anger book. And uh, around the, the back of the palace's Union Street uh, that's going up Russian Hill, and we'd get a taxi on Union Street and have them drive around the block and leave us off at the front of the palace with the red carpet. And then we'd go around and pick up more cockettes and then bring them. We just got into that thing. Oh, yes, we're so glamorous. Our pianist at that time, Peter Minton, uh, lived in uh, Menlo Park in a house that was totally 1930s. We were a craze of Art Deco. That was so stylish. We went to this whole Art Deco craze, probably... Uh, started starting with the Busby Berkeley uh, movies, which were terribly psychedelic. There was Peter, who had, I think it was a 1937 Lincoln or something like that. When Sylvester came, uh, as he started getting more money, he got, he bought a uh, vintage car as well. Everybody was, was into their vintage. Everybody was into their uh, deco drag or versions of it or aberrations of it. You mentioned something there casually, which I think is really cool. Uh, you mentioned Sylvester, and Sylvester is sort of this, um, especially here in San Francisco, sort of this cultural icon um, and this link to a time period long lost, um, gone too soon. But Sylvester, a lot of folks don't know this, was in fact a coquette. Is that is that true? He came to one of our rehearsals. I think it was for a show we were doing called Radio Rodeo or something like that, sort of cowboys on the radio. And um, he say, he sat down at the piano and accompanied himself, and he sang, Am I see in his Sylvester thing, K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E, you know, except much more fancy than that. And... Uh, we went, oh my God, you want to be with us? Sure, get on board. So what was Sylvester like as a cockhead? Well, he was he was a diva. I mean, you know. You know, it's like when somebody comes out of the dance floor and starts cutting a rug, you give them room. So yeah, go Sylvester, let's let's go. I'm glad you're with us. Well, for though you think I'm your angel from above, um, I'm just a jaded lady and you're a fool in love. <laughs> jaded lady, that's what my friends all call me. 
That was Sylvester singing Jaded Lady. You're listening to Out in the Bay, Queer Radio. I'm Christopher Beale. Sylvester wasn't the only star with roots in the Cockettes. Do you remember Divine from all those John Waters movies? Well, she performed with the Cockettes back in 1972. Divine was flown out uh, by our producer, Sebastian. It was flown out and uh, at a program of Divine Films, John Waters' Divine Films, before the, the movie started, he did an act. He came out on stage with a shopping cart with fresh fish in it and flung them around, rubbed them between his legs and things like that and threw them out of the audience. And we screamed, the cockettes screamed the loudest. We lost our voices that night. And it was so outrageous, so wonderful. And then we got him uh, a couple months after that to uh, be in a show with us called Journey to the Center of Uranus. And he played the crab on Uranus. By 1971, Hibiscus, who was one of the founding Cockettes, had left the group. The remaining Cockettes tried to capitalize on their newfound success and a little bit of press attention they were getting. And they tried to do a run in New York City. Bombing that first night like Hiroshima. It didn't go so great. But the subsequent performances got great reviews from the Village Voice. Uh, but at any rate, it sort of took, took a little of the air out. We knew we weren't going to go big after that. We were just going to stay local San Francisco. So we did a bunch more shows in San Francisco, but by the middle of 72, it sort of seemed like it was played out. We did uh, Les Etoiles de Minuit on New Year's when we got back from New York. We did Hot Greeks and Journey to the Center of Uranus. And uh, uh, we revived uh, Shanghai and Tinsel Tarts, which were our big, most popular shows. And uh, it seemed like, well, this, this is fine. We've had a good run. And back then, things changed so fast that, you know, we packed, we felt like we'd packed 40 years into two and a half. So we just kind of called it. John Rothamill, who was one of the great, great singers, performers at the time, uh, so much charisma on stage. He was leaving. He was dropping out. So that was, for me, kind of, okay, that's enough. We're sort of bleeding too much. Now let's, let's quit while we're ahead. So we had the big misdemeanor beauty pageant, and uh, Divine played last year's misdemeanor, and it was a fabulous thing. When you look back on, on the Cockettes part of your life, like what do you think the the legacy of the Cockettes is? Like, like what, what, what's the message you hope that they left in the world? Be fabulous. <laughs> Be, uh, you know, own, own it. Um, show all the sides of yourself. Um, who knows? I mean, who knows what people are going to think? Find your audience, find your light. Uh, but start with showing who you are and uh, please don't go by, don't let other people judge you. Invent your own, be your own counterculture, make up your own rules. I recorded this week's episode at Scrumbly Coldwind's home in Oakland. And during the session, I was treated to a song I wanted to share with you. This is Scrumbly Coldwind and Bertie Bob Watt 
singing tensile tarts. Honestly, that was my favorite part of my entire visit. That's Scrumbly Coldwin and Bertie Bob Watt singing Tensile Tarts. The Coquette's Eternal Emissions plays this weekend, December 3rd and 4th, at Piano Fight in Oakland. Tickets and info in the post for this week's episode at outinthebay.org. I asked Scrumbly why you should go see the Coquettes, Eternal Emissions, and he says you only need one reason. Because we told them to. (laughs) (laughs) I want to extend a special thanks to Fayette Hauser, Scrumbly Coldwin, and Bertie Bob Watt for their help with this episode of Out in the Bay. You've been listening to Out in the Bay Queer Radio. I'm Christopher Beale. All of our past episodes live at outinthebay.org. That's also where you can make a tax-deductible donation, outinthebay.org. Out in the Bay is a nonprofit independent production. We rely solely on listener support to keep the show on the air. So thanks in advance for your support. Also, thanks to Brad Payton and Richard Merck of Silicon Valley for your ongoing generous support. We really appreciate you. Thanks also to KALW 91.7 FM and San Francisco Public Press's radio station KSFP 102.5 FM in the San Francisco Bay Area for broadcasting out in the Bay each week. If you'd like to hear queer radio on your local public radio station, let them know and let us know. You can reach out anytime by emailing outinthebay at yahoo.com. Our founding producer is Eric Jansen. Our theme music is by Holly Mead. I'm Christopher Beale. I edited this episode of Out in the Bay. You can find me at Real Chris J. Beale on social media. And we'll see you next week out in the Bay and at outinthebay.org. Thank you.